Hello, 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 and welcome to part two of our top 10 2023 films, where we'll be discussing the top five films. For this special episode, we invited our friends Oiku Sofuolu and Lawrence Garcia to join us in discussing our top films. Oiku is a critic and PhD student based in Paris, whose writing has appeared in magazines such as the Turkish Altyadzi, Mubi Notebook, and the French feminist publication Soro Cine. This is the first time on the podcast for Lawrence, who is also a PhD student in Toronto and a film critic, whose writing regularly appears in magazines such as Reverse Shot, Movie Notebook, Cinemascope, and In Review Online. The format will be as follows. Each of us will discuss our top 10 favorite films of the year in reverse order, starting with the number 10 top film. If we discuss a film that appears higher on the list of another person, we will skip it and return to it at a later point. Thank you for joining us. Who's next? Uh, mine is Human Search, so we skip it because it's Patrick's number three. Four. Don't, don't spoil this. <laughs> okay, so so it's Eliana. Mine is May-December, but then we skip okay, it. Okay, we skip that yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes. we're back to me, I think. Yes. Um. So I have number five here, the Bach Devos. Is that yeah. higher yeah. on anyone else's? Yeah, I think we all saw this at the Berlinale, or and um, this is the first of his films that I've seen, and it's just one of the more texturally pleasurable movies of the year. I think there is a kind of sort of romantic subplot, but really the movie—it's not really centered. It's not really that people-centered. Like I loved how it integrates these sort of this textures of the city with like the images of like her like the microscopic images that the the she studies moss like the the female main character and you have he's a bryologist yeah she's a bryologist i don't (laughs) want to use that word but she's a bryologist and he's like a construction worker and so you have a kind of i don't know it reminded me almost of like a kind of city symphony where you just get a lot of these textures from the city from just these people interacting and like the joke at the end is like they meet but she doesn't even know his name or she doesn't even remember his name and that seems to be very much to the point of the movie is that you kind of it's almost this world before names i guess like where everything you just sort of note them for their like textural value that's what i got from the movie yeah there was also an aspect i wrote on in my review back then and i also you said it's not so much about people I think it's true, but I also think these very understated little moments between people seem to be sort of thematically related to even this like moss, this sort of structure, this sort of thing that this it that keeps that keeps people together, you know, this uh, social fabric in a sense. And I love, for instance, this little talk he has with his sister, uh, when it is about him going back to Romania or not, because that's also a film that is about sort of migrant culture, but it never makes it, you know, so much the theme of this. Or And they are all sort of, at first, the film is uh, zooming in on the work there as well, on the construction work, and then it sort of develops into this yeah, this the study of perhaps character constellations. I I love this little but very 
poignant and sweet uh, symbol of or symbolism of the soup that he's cooking. I think he's cooking two soups uh, and then shares the soup with different people. And the camera here is interesting because it's sometimes when people have already gone, it lingers a bit. And in lingering, it sort of, yeah, emphasizes the evanescence of the moment and you uh, still feel their presence, the people's presence there, but they are gone. And also how the sort of network of people works in there's this thing that's very endearing and it's very sweet, but it's also funny when the protagonist, when he's told about the Brussels main station being one of the eldest in Europe or something. And then later we hear him pass this message on to his to his lady as if it was his, you know, and so this these narrations that traverse different tongues, I find that very, yeah. I find that beautiful and there's also this magic element to it. There's this one moment when he steps into a bush and then comes back and holds into the camera something that we don't know what that is, but it's <laughs> it feels very magical. And it's yeah, it's I I love that film and that could easily be higher on my list as well. I, I when I think about this movie, I a painting comes into my mind and like in a painting as you, as if you can look at it closely and you can see the the layers and change of colors that like a one color changing into another and i think here is that kind of movie like every scene is there's such a subtle and fluid change in movement between scenes or people that like the tex the texture you just mentioned i felt especially when the first part of the first sequences in the movies mostly focused on the cityscape this construction uh, area buildings and little by little we kind of move into the more natural landscapes but it just happens so it it just happens really sneakily so you just don't realize it's happening but it's it's there and also about these human connections i i really love ghost tropic i discovered best day was thanks to that film and it was it's about a, a lady who, who falls asleep in, in the metro and she just misses her stop so she has to get back to the city past midnight so she has this chance encounters with in different parts of this area like i don't know the security uh, night security uh lady in like a night shop owner but it's just so random, but random in a way that it kind of reflects our daily uh, encounters in with people and that it's so encrusted in the city life that we sometimes forget. I, I really love that aspect in here as well, I think, that this really random and not really re quite superficial human encounters that being superficial channels deeper meanings to us. Like, I don't know, a, a simple thing as a soup. Yeah. This is, this is, I'm very happy you mentioned the soup. And, but yes, perhaps. Oh, and there's one, one, there's one thing that I did very much like very early on. And I wonder if it was also perceived by everyone else. Just this slight, very simple overlay of the image when we're looking at the trees at some point. I believe it's, 
when the female lead is talking about this feeling. But there's an over. Is it like a dream is, that she has? Yes, perhaps it's the dream too. Yeah. And this yeah, is so the, simple, like, but it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Lawrence. And then it segues into the kind of like, I don't know, it's like it's sort of the trees and it's like shifting focus with the greenery. Is yes. kind of the sequence? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other moment I think about is like the lights coming on, the the automatic lights coming on. It's like in the rain, it's raining and the lights, mm-hmm. yeah, the night, uh, what do you call those? The night lamps. Lanterns? lamps coming on lanterns yeah coming on uh, automatically lots of moments like that that sort of spring to mind yeah so that was my number five so yeah my number five Patrick. is i think that is to be skipped if i see it correctly that is nuri birgit jaylan's about dry grasses mm-hmm. okay so oiku number four uh i haven't seen this in Lots of people lists uh, either. It's a fire by Pet Salt. I know that lots of people think this is less like a less uh, successful Pet Salt film, which is maybe I liked it more because I kind of find it a bit too much this melodramatic aspect, especially in the latest Undine transit was maybe because of this chemistry between Paula Beer and uh, Franz Rogowski was too much that. Everyone was talking about that, so I kind of like it kind of pushed me out of the feelings from the film. But a fire was um, was like a I don't know like a summer breeze for me. And I I talked to Petzold, I wrote about it, so there's lots lots of things coming going on in my mind. But I think the being a real annoying jerk and the movie, the way the film never stops itself from criticizing or mocking him like a in a really self-deprecating way i love that approach a lot because i think it's it's kind of a romarian tale like it's just basically referencing uh la collection but the romarian protagonist is not there it's it's a completely different and more cynical and humoristic take to romarian uh relations and I also love the scheme that uh, scheme that Chris Petzold draws there with this three layers that I myself maybe invented while interpreting the movie of this mind, body, and world, where this guy who's so obsessed with himself and so feeling uh, having this trust and uh, confidence problems is so stuck in his, his mind that he denies his body and he also is uh, hostile against people who is comfortable with their bodies and expressing themselves with their bodies and he's also in in his completely in his mind that he ignores what is happening in the outside which is a forest fire and even though it's such a simple story between four or five people about in a taking place in a summer house i love this kind of drama that comes from a man and his obsessions and how it can be linked into so many different layers of uh human relations sexuality environmental disaster and it's not really i don't know it's not really uh pushed and forced it just happens so naturally and I like I like it. No Petzold fans here. I'm curious. You said that 
you compared it to the like like Collectioners, but without the male protagonist. But in some sense, I feel like the male protagonists in La Collectioners are some of the most ridiculous male characters in his like entire filmography. Like the men there are so like possessive and um, self-absorbed, and uh, so in that way, they are kind of like this character. I thought. Um, yeah, but like, do you think Romer really brings a kind of a layer of criticism or like an outside stance to these characters? I don't think so. Like, it's not really as open as Petzold is. Yeah, I think Petzold is definitely more upfront with his. Um, I think, like, I think Romer does, but I think the way he does it is quite different. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't personally care for a fire um, that much, but I, I also run very hot and cold on Petzold. I, I was taken in by it when I first saw it, but we can move on. <laughs> yeah, we can move on. There are lots of big titles ahead. Yeah, it's true. Perhaps just, uh, I neither did I care for this film, but I liked the poem that is re recited twice. That was a beautiful mm. scene, I thought. Uh, like just it's doing Heine, it again. Yeah, right? again. Yeah, it was Heine. Yeah, that I liked a lot. But I didn't like the overall narrative at the end that just felt more than the film was actually able to chew. Um, that's Eliana, no? Yes. So then we're at our body. So yes. it's time to talk about our body or not yet. I think yeah, it's yeah, time. Yeah. Number five. Sure. So this film... Binds us talking... together. <laughs> this film binds us together. Sorry. Claire Simon. This film by Claire Simon was uh, also because you were just talking, um, Lawrence, about how bodies are depicted, but in Joanna Arnaud's film, this is a very different, I suppose, way in that appealed to me just for the very simplicity of it, taking a camera into a hospital and following the day-to-day check-ins, uh, the check-ins that patients who go there have to both either endure or just go through as a checkup was um, and as a tract, everything from what is seen as, I mean, the film is called Our Body, but there is a focus on the female body or the body in transition and through all the stages of illness and life and death, female specific or female body specific endometriosis pregnancy ovarian cancer breast cancer and other illnesses and men in labor <laughs> yes labor uh, miscarriage Is it a gyne gynecological ward or i forget yeah. it's a specific ward right yeah i think yeah. it's the ward that does everything under the umbrella that falls under Female, female which is even expanded to people mm. who are transitioning either male to female, right. female to yeah. male. And it was very sensitively done. And we have a bit of a twist that I think perhaps... I think we should mention we, it. Like, it's... Don't you think? Like, it's... Oh, that Claire Simone yeah. becomes... Yeah, I think. I but think I mean, that's a... in the title, no? Like, no. she includes herself. Notre corps. Yeah, not like, necessarily, but, like but you don't necessarily being... expect that. Yeah, her being an actual like patient who goes through yeah serious illness. It, yeah, I mean, I think the other notable aspect, of, I mean, aside from that, is that the movie is three hours long. You don't necessarily expect 
a film like this, I think, but I think it mm -hmm. really benefits from benefits from that and having the range of procedures that it shows, the range of interactions. I mean, Ileana, you mentioned that it's like a very sensitive movie and I think that's true. And I think that in each scene, you get the sense that the people who are being depicted are being depicted in the way that they are comfortable with being depicted. And I think that's not always common, especially in like medical context where, you know, I don't know, you can talk about Foucault and the medical gaze or whatever, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's very rare to see a film that really takes the time to sort of portray the people in the way that you feel like they're comfortable with being portrayed, especially in this kind of a setting. I think what you said is so true because when I talked to her and upon reading the interviews she gave, she was kind of annoyed by being compared to wise men a lot because she insistently uh, underlined that her ambition her like a what she was trying to do was not about depicting hospital system or like this hospital structure but but the interactions between women and including herself as a woman so i think what she was trying to do is to not on, not to capture the hierarchy hierarchies between patients doctors or or doctors doctors or nurses but really human humanistically human level interactions between these people sharing the same space but at the same time this really good intention the way of thinking i may i think cause some criticism or objections and i think it's normal i don't remember uh, liking a documentary that didn't cause any problem criticism and it's good that we have that but um, maybe you know that that the, one of the doctors are actually accused of harassment uh, in france and it was actually there was actually a process going on but so, you know that's part of the film as well right we have the protests on the street that she also captures Yes, but it's not like, so you can't please everyone. What I, I was trying to say that, like, you can't please everyone with the depiction mm -hmm. in a movie that covers so many subjects and hierarchies and different occupations, people from different backgrounds. Like I remember reading, why are like there's transgender issue is, was also mentioned in, in criticism. But I think it's having these kind of, I don't want to say failures or negative aspects, but just like, a, I don't know, personal choices from the filmmaker is really precious. Even they, they're criticized. So maybe people can criticize Simone as being a really naive feminist and assuming a singular body in a plural form, like a woman, body, woman. I mean, not her call, it's still singular, right? Our body. Our, but not our bodies, but body. There's like a unifying aspect to that. One can interpret this, interpret this as a being a, a bit naive, but I think I'm happy with this. And I, I also really respect and find it really empowering the way she depicts herself uh, and bears herself, bears naked in front of the camera. And making herself vulnerable and not assuming the distanced, cold documentary gaze. I think it's really bold. And that's one of the 
aspects I like the most in the film, this kind of artistic will to be vulnerable as a director, but as a human being. Yeah, I would agree with just the the respect in which she unifies our corporal limitations on this earth. I mean, and shows people who live with illness, shows people with for whom the hospital is the home, and uh, but then pushes it into, well, turns the camera on herself, but then also in this depiction of the protest, also pushes into this realm of the, the, the female body is a very political um, issue and something that's been debated well, in many, many, many countries, even the ones that are so-called first world countries. And so questioning the idea of control of the body and making it very relevant while also pointing out, because I think there has been a bit of a tendency, and especially it seems for French language films recently, you have the, just to to be featuring hospital settings, you have in the acid section of Cannes on the edge, um, which was more uh, following a person who's an emergency psych um, psychologist as he goes through all the wards in an underfunded hospital I mean the hospital that Claire Simon also shows is a public hospital then you have what the um the Humani Corporate there's also Alice Diop's uh, and, film on call I don't remember the French title but there's it's on permanence yes and, yeah, and then there are features as well. So there was uh, Sage Femme that also played at the Berlinale, and mm-hmm. the, and there was um, the La Friction or La Fission. Uh, ah, no, La Fracture. The, yeah, La Fracture. Yeah. There's also Médecin de la Nuit or Médecin de Garde, I think, with Vincent McCain. He's portraying a ambulant direct uh, ambulant doctor who gives medication to the ad- mm-hmm. addicted people i don't remember the name but médecin de la nuit or something like that anyway i'm curious to see how i i think often in our lives these are conversations that we don't have necessarily with those who are close to us all the time it depends it really all depends but this pushing of it to the foreground um in in cinema and showing hopefully encounters that if we are fortunate enough not to have but might also be inevitable too, that you will know someone who experiences such a thing. Yeah, and uh, just as a last point, maybe from my side, uh, to sort of stress what Urku said about this non-hierarchy that is depicted here. Also, she uses really inconspicuous cuts there. So you're often, you know, you're just from one scene to the other without, you know, introduction or anything. And I uh, like that a lot because that sort of stresses this point. Yeah. Shall we go on with Lawrence? So my next one is This Closeness, the Kit Zauhar movie that Patrick had mentioned. This is a film that premiered at South by Southwest, sort of American independent director. Didn't really go that many places, but I think it's a really, really strong film. She has one previous feature called Actual People, which she also starred and directed in. But this one is kind of like a chamber piece almost. Um, You don't realize it at first, but it's entirely set in this one apartment where this couple goes to visit for like the weekend. Um, they're just staying at an Airbnb and there's like the, the host hosting them. And there's sort of these tensions that arise between them. But I think what's like most striking about the film is how it sort of incorporates this sort of, it has a, one of the characters like has an ASMR channel. So they make ASMR videos, but 
and what's interesting is like, well, at some point they, they, you do hear an ASMR video and at some point you see them film an ASMR video. But I think what's most um, interesting about the film is how it uses these very heightened sensory um, elements to sort of inflect your perspective on the this drama that is going on between these um, three people in the apartment. And so, yeah, like that sort of it will move into these very heightened like sounds and and uh, sensory elements that sort of transform your sense of how these people are interacting and will shift your perspectives on them in really, really interesting ways. I don't know, Patrick, maybe you, since you've yeah, seen it as well. Yeah, and Eliana even saw uh, her previous film as well. Just uh, for this, what you just mentioned, the ASMR part, I I love the scene when she's just performing it to to this roommate there. So the guy who lives there, because usually this is a sort of parasocial uh, form of communication, right? But there you see it play out in real life and you see how awkward that suddenly can become, you know, and the film captures this so well. So there is this heightened intimacy, but at the same time, you also, as a, as a spectator of this, you see the, like the, if not the falsity, then at least the, I don't know, you see, you see more or like you, you see the thing performed. You don't just hear it, you know, you don't just have it in, in your ears and it felt so vulnerable, you know, the way this guy is enjoying this, just, you know, and we looking at him and I, I think I haven't seen something quite as vulnerable as this perhaps in, uh, in this year. So yeah, it was fascinating. And and the first half for me, I mean, when you were talking earlier about horror films, <laughs> I was just like, oh, I was completely tense throughout this interaction. Just like the interactions, is, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, this was a horror film. Yeah, the writing um, is so good. I think, yeah. you know, it's it's easy to overlook how good the writing actually is because it makes you cringe permanently, but on, you know, on a very high level and i mean it doesn't i think yeah sorry i was gonna say my favorite line in the film is when the boyfriend of the 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 actress who's also the the director tells her that she doesn't really look that asian because i mean i think i've read an interview of hers where she says you know i am asian um or like she's half asian i think um, but she doesn't really look that Asian, so she doesn't get cast for Asian roles. And so she's like, well, if I want to act, I just have to kind of direct my own movies and cast <laughs> myself. So this was like a very funny kind of uh, element. Like, I didn't realize that watching this film, but I only realized it after. But that line sort of stuck out. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, anyway, it... uh, you're number four, Patrick. I... Oh, yeah. And But did you or... want to add anything else? Sorry. Oh, no, no, just that, just oh. so that the director's work is a rabbit hole that I like to explore and very looking forward to because actual people was, there's more about this Asian identity in that as well. Yeah, but I think we will skip mine again because that's Radu Jude. Do not expect too much from the end of the world. Okay. So Los Delinquentes. So I think it was in your list. Uh, no? Yes. Um, this this is really um, hard to define a uh, genre movie, I think. Um, do you want to start maybe 
someone has described it as a slow cinema heist film, but I don't think it's necessarily slow no. cinema. It might have been David Ehrlich, or I would say it's a very comical yet simply presented plot where in Argentina there's a man who also has a different name that this name is an anagram of, of all the many other, names of many names and many characters that present and it just is a sort of bifurcation in some sense for me at least of what it means to desire something else perhaps a simpler pastoral life away from the city and how this takes its role on the two main characters who take turns sharing screen time and ultimately figure out a different journey on the way. But um, I think while I was watching the movie, like we, we watch a lot of movies, right? So every time we see something, as we were mentioning in a Richa movie, we kind of uh, associate events happening to an eventual narrative. Like you can guess what will happen next if you're like adept cinephile mm. but with this movie it was so surprising and um invigorating in terms of narrative while being so simple mm. like just heist movie there's a money uh hidden there's a guy who's in prison <laughs> but every time something when something happened it was completely unexpected at, at least it was for me mm. and i also really loved the this humor really nonsensical humor between names that really don't serve anything mm -hmm. whatsoever in the movie and I think like when I think about the things I like it they don't make any coherent whole but these just really small details that just stands out and I and it's so craftfully made you know as like it's a three hour, like more than two and a half hour, I think. And for such a simple plot, I think it's really, it's it's really successful to like keep it so keeping us, uh, our curiosity alive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I think what my appreciation mostly comes from this formal and narrative side of storytelling. Yeah. And that's why maybe I kind of likened it to a Raul Ruiz movie. Uh, I can't re remember the title, but this like intricate storytelling reminded me of Ruiz. Yeah, I think the playfulness of the narrative is kind has aspects of Ruiz. The, the the tone is kind of different, but I can see the sort of just the interest in stories and stories upon stories. Mm -hmm. Like it's yeah, I mean, I didn't think of Ruiz. I thought more of like Argentinian, Argentine directors like the Trenque Lauken sort of. Mm -hmm. um, New Argentinian cinema. <laughs> yeah, like the sort of the La Flor kind of uh, group. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I don't know if it's giving it away, but one little detail I like is that the boss of the man who tries to escape his bank job is played by the same actor who becomes his prison boss, which I think <laughs> is funny once you see the film. Yeah, totally. But yes, we can move on. To your number three, I think. Okay. My number three. Four. A uh, number four. It's Un uh, Prince. I think it's a Norris list as well. Yeah, that's my that's my number three. So we can would you like to start? Well, we can just talk about it because that's yes. that's what I was gonna talk about next. Yeah. 
Yeah, A Prince by Pierre Carton. This is the first of his films that I've seen. The ones that are other ones that are available online don't have subtitles, and me being a non-French speaker, unfortunately, I can't watch them. But I was really taken with this. Um, it's sort of nominally about a young person who goes and studies, like to be a gardener. So he goes to this training center, and he grows up at some point, and he has like these like queer relationships with like the various men around there. But there's also this sort of subplot with like an adopted son um, of one of the people who runs the center. In any case, I think the the movie I find most like, what's most interesting is how it sort of incorporates like these kind of documentary textures um, with this very like almost outlandish and erotic narrative. Like, and the way it sort of integrates like image and sound, it reminded me a bit of like Duras, like Marguerite Duras's movies where there's always like the image and sound is always out of sync, but there's always a kind of, but it, it it's the way it uses like your expectation of the, the images to integrate with like this sort of narrative that you can't quite piece together um, that I find really pleasurable about this film. I don't know. I There's also one moment, which I don't know if I will go into, but maybe you can, Eliana, mention. There's like a very striking image, shall we say, hmm. in the film that <laughs> if you have seen the film, you will not forget. I, I found that this film was also a very strange sort of viewing experience because it it started to hit things that I of pleasure in my brain, but I can't entirely, upon first watching it and then seeing it again, vocalize, but something about the sexuality, the bodies, the display of older bodies entangled with other younger body, a younger body, this very simple little effects. One is a dissolving effect, and then the other is at some point this like this mythical creature emerges from <laughs> someone's pants. Seven heads? Eight heads? Shall we even be more direct no, about it? No, I think it? that's fine. And this subplot of the adopted son, which also turns into almost a fairy tale. I think we have at some point someone on a boat reading or writing a letter or reading an entry. And I liked this one scene in particular where time, he's in bed, the man is in bed, and then he gets out of bed. And um, previously he was in bed with two other older men. And then someone comes back to the bed and they're all of them are older. And this is just so simple, but I think it, it appealed in understanding the passage of time and the eternal aspect of sexuality and how this should in some sense persist hopefully. Would you perhaps remind me and also just for listeners, I think, isn't there something like an, like a collective around this director? Like aren't there several filmmakers or like artists or something that collaborate there? Or is yes. that too much to ask now? I, I you know, yeah. I, I just know there was something that was interesting, but. Yes, but I don't think I can speak accurately okay. on it, but um do you yeah i can't really know? speak to that either okay um that's fine but it is as i've heard the film that is most uh most personal to pierre Creton and uh, has to do a lot with uh, with his personal encounters with 
people who had taken him in when he was much younger um, and was entering the film world and the gardening <laughs> milieu and um, Prince, I don't know where people will be able to see it yeah oh, that's for this I don't think anywhere <laughs> it was a very I fear it was a very quiet film and I think it released it... in France no or sure mm, maybe I don't know I don't know it, it, it does have it, it does have distribution in the US already um, oh oh wow so it'll okay. come out next year a strand it's... releasing they usually do a lot of queer cinema so like last year they picked up the Alain Giraudy movie, the um, and they picked this up as well. Yeah. Mm, okay. Well, that's surprising to me. Okay. That was number three. So, Patrick. Yeah, mine is uh, the Human Search three. I don't know if someone still has that or. Yeah, it's mine. So now we can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what a film! What a film! Uh, it's also part of the greater narrative about Argentinian film at the moment, I suppose, even though with that film, it's really a global event, right? With all these different characters, seemingly without any friction, traverse from one country to the next, from one image to the next. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I heard this is very much inspired by M Michael Snow's La Région Centrale. I haven't seen that film, uh, but I heard, so for anyone who's from Berlin, this will play at the Arsenal in January. So I'm looking forward to see that, to uh, seeing that in January. And yeah, like La Bette, what I really liked is also this sort of glitchy, uh, yeah, this glitchy poetics that he, yeah, that is basically dominating the entire imagery while still like meandering around and traversing not only in in time and space, but also in language as well. And there is seemingly no barrier between uh, people and experiences with uh, Argentina, Portugal, the Netherlands, Taiwan, Brazil, Hong Kong, Sri Lanka, Peru. So we have so many countries and it just, I think there's so many images i've never seen like that he uses this sort of spherical camera with like uh 306 uh, 360 degrees um eight lenses i read um 11k so it's it's really something i've never seen like that before and i i like the first part and i like the third part now uh perhaps even more mm, there's there's not too much I can actually contribute like like thesis wise or something because I couldn't find my notes on this either. But it's still like if I just think of this film, these images are still in my mind and I and I would really die to see that film in cinema, but I don't know if I will have the chance. I can like uh, help on help you on the thesis part. Maybe I'm a bit uh, exaggerating my theory or it's too preposterous I don't know but like you you know these um Tom Gunning uh article about early cinema and how our practice our vision is formed by the other movements in daily lives like trains panorama dioramas before the cinema and how it shaped our vision in the end of the century so when I see the the current audiovisual environment that we're living in this kind of this movie, it kind of like an aspect of this 
change in our vision and habits of viewing the world and the people because this uh, spherical camera is kind of like the way of I don't know approaching this change right because I mean our attention span is really changed the way we look at the images when you think about the transitions between people and spaces and places it kind of reminds me of this uh internet uh habits of looking at the videos and different people like i don't know if you're in instagram or tiktok and you just like a swap it and you're in a different country in a in a hearing different language so i, I this is my this was my idea of i think approaching this film was how it is related to our own understanding and approach to to the this new cinema new, new visual intuitions Regime. and yeah yeah exactly. I, I mean that makes sense to me um but that's why it's surprising to me to hear that la region centrale was the inspiration i thought because i thought the michael snow film that i thought about while watching this film was corpus colossum i don't know if you've seen that one but it's one that has a lot of it's like footage of an office space but like super digitally manipulated so like the 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 image like twists and turns like things enlarge like it's just i think it's characteristic of our new sort of visual regime that like what we consider like normal normal like movement or normal uh how things are supposed to look is a very like malleable and plastic in in a way that's like definitely different from before it's like we expect that every image can be like manipulated in such a way that like um, what we perceive as like normal movement is very different than, you know, a hundred years ago, for instance. That's sort of what I find interesting about this yeah. film. And you wrote actually a really nice review on it and reverse uh, shot, which for me illuminated the process of how you choose the images in the post-production in, in yeah, this directorial so, mm, if you yeah please yeah so he shot it with a 360 degree like camera and so what it allowed him to do was to sort of frame things in post production so he had you know the 360 degree footage but using a kind of vr sort of workflow he can like trace a path through that footage so theoretically like everything we're seeing he's like you can like do that he could capture different images from like the images that that we're seeing and theoretically, you can do that for the entire movie and generate, I don't know, like a billion different movies, um, <laughs> potentially. Um, yeah, yeah I, th I think I also read at some point he, like, rather early on in the, in, the, in the shoot, he said that he wouldn't even care too much whether uh, some things w w wouldn't quite work or something if some, some ideas he had planned out wouldn't quite work out that way because uh, then this process would have been even crazier than it already was so he just went for the imperfection there as well <laughs> we should move on okay uh my number two is may december we can um, talk about it it's my number two as well i mean it's of course um one of the movies that it's talk about the most these days especially after the todd haynes comments on camp I don't know if uh, our listeners have followed this, but I think the keywords that used the most uh, when 
talking about the movie was melodrama, um, camp, and soap opera, I guess. I don't want to go into details of the um of the plot, but I I really thought well that it's everything is was so um unclear, ambiguous to to have a clear understanding of what this movie is actually trying to do. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing, of course. On the contrary, it opened so many discussions about what we call camp and how these concepts are easily used as like an interchanging way. But actually, it kind of invited us to think about what these concepts and genres really mean Go yeah um i think what i find most appealing about the film is like whether you call it camp melodrama it's like what's interesting is that there is this sort of event at the core of this uh this film which is like okay when um you know how many years ago like this 36 year old woman seduced this 10 year old boy or something and um, now you have this distance from the event and What's interesting is you have all of these like different performance registers integrated into the same movie. You have like this really, I don't know, you could really call it like sort of campy aspects with, you know, the crash zoom into Julianne Moore mm-hmm. um, saying with like music. Oh, yeah, with the music coming in. But you also have these weird, you also have these other scenes where, you know, um, Natalie Portman is just sitting with the, the ex-husband and they're just having a normal conversation. And it's a different, entirely different performative register, but it's still related to the same event. And then you have another scene where Natalie Portman is talking to the the lawyer and they're having another conversation. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's almost like a journalist interviewing like a subject. And then at some point, the former son or like the son from the previous marriage, Georgie comes out of the background because he's been singing in the background and he comes into the frame and enters the frame. And suddenly the sort of performance register shifts again. And I think it's the sort of the way the film like keeps integrating these different like performance registers in relation to the same event that I find um, very interesting about it. And it has so many complex characters, like every, each of them were so rich and so full of um, interesting uh, aspects. Like I don't remember any movie that I watched recently that had so many colorful characters inside like each of them really interestingly crafted really distinguished uh aspects like standing out and since the movie was released on netflix like it's talked over and over on twitter and lots of people like pointed out so many details like the 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 dress detail for example i haven't really realized that the um julia moore's gracie Where's actually the her daughter uh, tries and she says like oh you're you're so brave that you want to wear this because your arms are so you know uh, chubby and then she wears herself like this this is so clever and so subtle I, I I really love these these kind of details and also I think every perform performance really stands out like Natalie Portman I don't think she's a really good actress in many movies but I think Todd Haynes has this capacity of knowing how to channel the potential in every uh, actor that he's working with strangely at number three (laughs) okay 
So this is a film that um, sobre todo de noche. So it was at Venice in Giornati degli Autori, which is the equivalent of uh, director's fortnight at Cannes, kind of, and by Victor Iriarte. And it appealed to me, it's the film that might have touched me the most simply for the content, um, but also the way that it's told was quite fascinating. It is a film where one person becomes three people at some point in this mother-son relationship. One hand becomes three hands. There are different gestures. There are different ways of expressing oneself through these movements that are often overlooked. There's an immense focus on what hands do and how they, and the characters are brought to life with how they use their hands. There's an underlying theme of piano players versus stenographers. And the way that this film is structured is in chapters that come from an epistolary sense. So a letter is written to one person and then one person writes a letter to another person. And then it plays with genre uh, in terms of melodrama and thriller while also remaining in some sense at its core. It is uh, a film that tries to confront historical wrongdoings through a very personal lens of the family structure and how this comes together in the end. And I think for me, it was, it was very powerful and, and it was delivered in a very, would you say, understated way? Patrick got to see it. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, pretty much so. But I like that even the violence is sort of codified here. So the violence is, for instance, in the stenography, because it's about these uh, separation from, you know, of mothers, um, from their babies, uh, like quite a few thousands over a few decades in Spain. So it's a bit like this unearthing that Almodova did um, uh, a few years ago with the uh, Maros Paralelas. And here, the stenography, to me, it also pointed at the sort of obedience uh, to the higher order in, in Spain as well. And there's this one person you listen to, the one professor, and that's how you learn. So they, to me, also got this, yeah, there was this sort of element of violence without displaying any violence. Uh, yeah, I, I think, and what you said about the threefoldness of character, maybe that also applies to the genre, right? As you said, it's it's all at once at the same time and really very mm, confident. It's very confident filmmaking because it doesn't introduce any of his, of the modes and means it employs. It just throws you in and you have to work with it. So, yeah. And then? Is, is that now your number two, Eliana? Because <laughs> there was your I number three, no? that's my number three, strangely. Yeah. Perhaps there was just a lot of overlap with other films. That... You should go to your number two then. All right. So then my number two would be A Wild Rumor, which I believe... Did Patrick briefly mention? Yeah, there was in my mentions earlier. A Korean film by Lee Jong Hong. That is and... technically also a 2022 release. Ah, yes. Thank you for calling me out on that. And this is a film that's 
depicts almost a, a snapshot of reality in a way that plays with fate without ever invoking fate. It plays with the movement of characters. Once again, I think this is a theme that I like. One becomes three and then kind of four people. And it's material necessity that draws people from different class backgrounds in Korea to some form of new cohabitation, which is of interest to me because I think there's a theme in cinema these days to, to sort of embrace this, I don't want to say communal, but something that is larger than just two people or a family sharing space. Um, but rather strangers who might occupy one space and how it is that these, how people can be drawn together. But the film unravels essentially without one knowing where it might go as well. An incident occurs and the main character, who is a kind of an unlikable yet somewhat relatable carpenter, faces damage to his car and he tries to find out who did it. And in that process, we see how he goes about trying to peacock and assert his status without also, with by also failing to necessarily be, he's incidentally in, in a part, uh, sharing a space with a couple that has a very luxurious home that's made so that it could be separate but together and those are the overarching themes that yeah yeah and i think the film is one of the greatest dialogues i've i've seen this year as well as this great dialogue how this yeah how there's this sort of working class bonding and then in a dialogue about the the world cup in 2002 the um football the world cup the soccer uh, ensues and it's really totally unhinged there are connections to be drawn how this event sort of was the worst for korean society and it's just the way this worker like who tries to put things together that don't belong together is so fascinating and yeah it's sort of it yeah it it invites you into a way of thinking that is so counterintuitive but therefore it feels all the more real so yeah there's i like that film quite a lot yeah, there's something a bit as if when one watches this film one can think ah oh, nothing happened in this film but i think that's also very very brilliant the silent brilliance of it yeah i think one of the things in cinema i like most is when things that seemingly have no bearing on anything, they become sort of the obsession of people. And in this film, just a car gets jumped on by someone and the protagonist tries to find out what happened with this car at night. And that's <laughs> it. And this takes up such a large chunk of the film and it seems so like, what is even the point? But to him, it's so important. And then his obsession becomes so entertaining to see. So yeah, I, I like that quite a lot. Um, is that you now, uh, Lawrence, or was your number two also May, December? Uh, 
My number two is also mid-December, so I think it's you now. Okay, so for me, it's now Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell by uh, Pham Tianan. Uh, this film blew me away, really, at Cannes. Uh, I think it was, yeah, among the most stellar filmmaking I've seen in, in years. I think every scene seems so controlled, seems to seems to incorporate many ideas at the same time. So, so this very first scene of the film that is basically his short film that won in the Kanzan in 2019 now has sort of evolved into his feature debut. Uh, so this is from a Vietnamese, uh, yeah, Vietnamese director. So also cinema that we don't see very often, at least I don't. And yeah, this I know it's heavily charged in like Christian iconography and Christian like spiritual thinking, but I couldn't care less about that. I still think the filmmaking itself is so exceptional. I, I was really at awe, at, you know, in many scenes because they always seems to, there always seems to be an underlying concept. There is this great scene, for instance, that seems like, that seems so inconspicuous almost it's when when the protagonist so he becomes inadvertently the guardian of his nephew because uh the the son of his brother dies but we never see the brother we rather know that this protagonist was close to his sister-in-law so the wife of his brother and so he now has to take care of this this young boy but uh, he now goes to this town to find his brother. And there he encounters this man, Mr. Lu. And the way we approach this Mr. Lu is through a window that is open. And it's as slowly as possible, almost the camera zooms in on this Mr. Lu, but we don't see him at all. But we already hear the talking of the two of them. And I feel like this is such a clever way to make us curious in seeing Mr. Lu, which would otherwise, uh, would otherwise perhaps be a character that is not too much of interest to us. He's this old, like he, he's this guy who says, uh, I'm, I'm, I miss it to be in combat, you know, because there was at some point there was his sort of, uh, there was a thing that perhaps when he felt most alive, and now he's lacking that and he leads this persistence in this rural town or even less than a town rural, uh, yeah, village perhaps. And through this zooming, there is a sort of anticipation to seeing him. And very often in this film, it's so heavily charged with meaning and that the greatness of it is that Fiam Tian An is conscious of it. So it's, constantly interrupted so whenever you think you might reach a sort of transcendent moment it's interrupted there are many scenes like this uh there's a massage scene when the phone rings for instance there is a funeral where we see someone just doom swiping their phone and or doom scrolling on their phone we see the same sort of funeral festivity we see that this in fact is uh screened on on a computer because uh, our protagonist is editing this 
ceremony. So we repeat it again and again. And there's there's so many of these scenes that I think the yeah the filmmaker is just very conscious of what he's doing. And yeah, I I don't think there are many filmmakers for whose next project I will be as excited as for this one. So that's from Tianan inside the Yellow Cocoon Show, which recently also won the uh, Bazaar Prize. Can uh, I think uh, in the jury where people such as uh, Albert Serra. So I was happy for that as well. So yeah. does does that bring us, or is there anything you'd like to add to that film? I don't like Lawrence. Is there anything that is still on your mind about that film? Uh, not really. I feel like you've you've covered you've got it covered. Um, I, I like aspects of it. I think I'll definitely be interested to see his next film. But I wasn't quite convinced by this one in the same way that I'm not quite convinced by like Be Gone, for instance, um, mm. whose mm. films I think do. It's hard not to think about it with the six right. long take kind of thing. Like watching some of these sequences, I thought of Kaylee Blues and yeah. um, some of the, not like some of the reservations that I have about that. Um, but definitely a director to, whose films I will be looking out for. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. yeah. I had a little warning because the first time I saw this, I really marveled at the magic of the cinematography. And then I saw it again. And this was a very strange experience. It was just like watching a magician's trick that you can see through. And this was horrible. So I don't know if anyone will ever experience this or... But that is funny because the protagonist is a magician yes. and performs yes. many tricks. Yes. But um, we can... Anyway, move, move on to... Is that number one for Oku? Yeah. So, <laughs> saluta bobitsa. Uh, I'll start by saying this. And yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's, of course, one of the funniest movies of the year, probably. But I think, Radu, I, I, I don't know if you pronounce Jude or Jude. Uh, I thought it's Jude, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't want to. I, I say Radu Jude, but I, I think he's one of the most influential political and uh, filmmakers of our like, contemporary cinema. I always loved uh, you, Radu Jude's work and I bad luck banging Looney porn was also one of my favorites of the year when it's released. But like in this film, there are so many layers about the history of cinema, about cinematic re references um, to Romanian cinema, the world cinema. Um, but also it's about social inequalities, um, hierarchies and cor corruption and how this kind of um, exploitation reverberates in different uh, circles and spheres in professional life. But the way Jude approaches it is not at all cynical. Of course, there are some aspects of dark humor there. This kind of black and white imagery kind of reflects this aspect. But I think he, at the end, and finds the human gaze. I don't want to talk about the uh, plot of the movie, but there's Ange Angela. She's like a production assistant for a documentary about working environment security. So she has to find people who had work accidents. So and she finds a man uh, who is bound to a wheelchair. And at the end, 
like this three hour long movie, like the uh, the third half of it, I think, is reserved for this man on wheelchair. And we just we only see him on the screen. And I think it's such a generous and bold way to give space to a person who who otherwise won't be shown on a big screen. And like there are so many layers regarding this Angela character because it's also linked to uh, another film in Romanian cinema that is called Angela Angela Moves On, where we see uh, a woman who becomes a driver that kind of resonates with the Angela we see in in, in Radu's actual movie because she's also uh, traveling around Bucharest, like uh, trying to meet with people, meetings and everything, trying to like... uh, working all the time yeah very precarious yeah yeah and she also like there's so many things to talk about actually like that's that's why i'm trying to i it's i find it difficult to bring ideas together because there's also because she also has a a persona uh, an avatar on tiktok uh, where she uses this filter uh of uh uh, of Andrew Tate, like reflected on her face, and called Bobitsa, where she talks in a really crude way. And this is interesting because I, I what I like about Radu Jut cinema is that he opens spaces for people. This character was actually invented by the actors herself as a part of the uh, feminist art project. So as he did with this wheelchair person he also opened the filmic space to her and i i found that i found this really endearing and in this really huge cinematic world there's also a space for godard for example or uve ball like this this is such a generous and yeah uh open space for rich ideas like there's lots of intellectual and ideological stuff there but i would don't think Jude is being uh, condescending or intellectualizing everything. I think it's rather accessible comparing to, for example, the barbarians or bad luck banging, because it's more, I think, related to uh, Romanian bureaucracy, this dialogue in the school and the history of Romania. Um, so there's another Angela that actually Radu Jude is referring to by this formal choice that he's employing in the movie which is slowing down the image um the filmmaker duo um Yanikian and Angela Ricciolucci's films so there's so many layers there and I don't know yeah. like after Godard's death I feel like Judic kind of represents for, to me type of filmmaking that is kind of in the in verge of disappearance so that's why i really cherish it yeah and to this idea that uh, the images are slowed down of the other angela that is also his idea of sort of using cinema as an archive to reflect on the society back then because he uses that in order to show us how what we would call real life looked like under then so yes yeah under his regime, uh, imagery of the of the everyday life that was not allowed, that was censored back then. So he uses cinema as an archive here to find a sort of historical truth. And I, yeah, 
I appreciate that very much. And also he's not hostile against new technologies. I think he's like, he's critical towards them, but he also employs them to criticize them. Oh yeah, for sure. And he, I had, I had the chance to see the film again two uh, two days ago in Berlin. He he was there for a Q and A again. And he said also that his next film will be shot on iPhone. And oh he my all- god! <laughs> and- was it the Dracula film? Because I th- I know that he's working on a Dracula film. Oh, I don't know, but maybe that was his project because he he was in Berlin for a year or so for the DAAD, and mm-hmm. uh, he had an assigned project here for which he got money. He also talked a lot about financing and how he just wants to keep doing these small movies of like a few hundred thousand euros budget but uh, after the golden bear his producers and other people they who wanted him to you know transition to english films and make bigger budget films also because then the margins might get you know higher that the producers would uh possibly earn but yeah he's not that guy you know and and i love that's him that's why we love but... him <laughs> that's why we love him yeah Okay, uh, what a good pick. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add, Lawrence, on, on Radu? No, except that I do agree that he is like the most Godardian filmmaker working. So, yeah. yeah. And in just the way that Waiku's talking about, yeah. Yeah, just the way he captures the anarchical, you know, like that is, that must be so the- difficult, you know, because it seems so random, but nothing there can be random, you know, in film, that's not quite possible to uh, depict something as random that is not planned, you know, it's it's crazy. Okay, I guess that leads us to Eliana, your number one. I, I should be like a really uh, ashamed of this choice, like you not making it in my list. <laughs> no, Nuri Bilge Jelan's About Dry Grasses will be my number one. Because it's such a riveting film, I think. But we talked about it previously with Eku. And it just opens up so many different conversations, I think. It beautifully unfolds this dynamic they have of the characters. I think I just like films. Many of the films that I think are in the top ten feature Men who are somehow perhaps potentially even impotent if we, or it's highly suggested this impotency or this some sort of inability to perform or this lower, I mean, earlier, I don't even know if you see a fire mm-hmm. character as this as mm-hmm. well. Und. Und. <laughs> Und. And in terms of action, inaction, the ideas behind bringing civilization to a small space, the frustration that comes with this, this man who is in his own world to some degree, this competition between his roommate, how he goes about getting the attention of Nurai, this a woman who also has a political history behind it that yeah. has talked a little bit to me about. But um, also, sure if uh, there is. also to get the attention of the student, right? Yes, yes. And ultimately, this film for me is about the need to desire something that is perhaps greater than what we should be earthly desiring. 
not in this very vulgar sense, but rather in the sense of how we would like to be perceived. And that ultimately pushes it to my number one, even though I have not said much. But perhaps I'll throw it to you if you wanted to elaborate. Yeah, I, I can maybe like um go on more about Jaylan's how it stands out in Jaylan's filmography because I think uh, the opening shot is really significant because when the film starts, you immediately say, "Okay, I'm watching a Jaylan film." There's a guy in the back, in the in far away, walking in in the like really snowstorm. Okay, this is a Jaylan film, but I think he knows that he's arrived in a moment in his career that he has uh, developed a distinct and significant style that he started he starts to reference it he starts to create a meta uh reflection on it through these self-referential details in his in the movie like there there are so many things that we can talk about the film as you said but what struck me the most was this formal experiments he does in through the use of his own uh, photos mm. that we see in a like a slideshow aesthetic when the male protagonist um summit shows the photo he he was he has been taking to uh but these photos actually like the VCD camera it's just a, like a really cheap 2000 uh, digital cam first like one of the first digital cameras probably and you understand that this camera can't shoot these pictures so you immediately understand it's actually these photos are taken by Jaylan himself and he kind of subtly in, inserts his own gaze into the movie. And there's another self-referential moment, I think, is the when Summit, before uh, having sex with Nurai, goes into the bathroom and the bathroom door opens to the backstage of the film. That when this happens, I was like, what is happening? Like, you won't expect this to happen in a Jaylan movie. So I think he sort of reminds us that we are actually watching a Jaylan movie, as he did in the beginning. This is a Jaylan movie. And I think the fact that he starts to think about his own choices, own style, is really promising, maybe, for the his next projects. Because I think, like, these kind of auteurs, as we call when they achieve a sort of level of recognition and a distinctive style, they just start to lose their probable originality or this authentic style. So what I like is that when he's, even he's in this really mature period, that he start to think and discover new realms in his cinema. But I don't want to go into details about politics really well patrick this was your number um five or... it was my number five yes yeah um many things were already said uh i really liked this lolita aspect aspect in this film that he sort of sort of charges this uh young girl with all this meaning and there is this sort of inversion of this dialogue we hear in call me by your name you know when uh when the father talks to his son about how how precious these these moments of youth and love are and that they cannot be brought back but 
later they will be even more precious to you and you'll look back on them and he basically holds the same speech but to her you know a um, young girl who's not you know like she's not on his discursive level you know it's sort of everything he says there it's really just for himself and he feels like he wants to listen to himself and hear himself and I found this really fascinating and the fact that the film sort of ends on that um, voiceover as well that feels so almost stifled but it it's sort of a caricature of that you know like a, a subpar film perhaps would end like this but this film sort of reflects that as well that this would sort of be the tradition of that genre and he yeah plays with that i think and uh that i yeah that and, is something i want to point out and just the last thing going off of that it's so fascinating to me to see how people are reacting to this character of summit and how a lot of people are very eager to say this is a horrible person this is a horrible guy and um but in terms of wanting to uh, listen to his own self this came up a little bit earlier off off um off the mic in terms of how this letter that we never know who it's addressed to mm-hmm. is interpreted and Iku had one version of an interpretation and i find that's curious that there's a variation within that as well on how people are just receiving the ambiguity of this scene and also the scene when he gets offset and just how this doesn't necessarily mean anything but just how it is open to different variations of how one might but i think that totally does because uh it's so much about him performing because he always leaves the door open you know he wants to display that there is no that there is no uh hidden hidden self you know what he displays to people that he wants others to believe that this is him already so when he goes to this to this uh, when he goes offset this sort of this sort of uh, brings that idea to to life you know that there he's preparing for his for his next performance mm. and yeah but yeah it's it's a great choice i i love that film as well now we have the number one from lawrence so Who's my that? number one is oh yeah this is a film that i saw in the berlin forum um it's called about 30 i don't know that that many people have seen it it's by a young argentine director martin shandley um i think the spanish title is arturo a los 30 and it's sort of like the sort of my pithy like kind of how description of this would be like jetem jetem but shifted to the key of a slacker comedy. And I think what, so it basically follows this kind of 30-year-old sort of slacker. His life is going nowhere, and he's attending a wedding of a a friend of his. And then an accident happens, and then suddenly we're dropped into like previous um, moments from the past decade of his life. And sort of, we sort of skip between this like present tense of the accident and the aftermath of the accident when he goes to the wedding and all of these moments in the past. And so I think what I appreciate most was just like the structure of this film. Well, for one thing, it's a very funny film, but also just like the way that the structure sort of brings like these like past memories in relation to the present event and kind of transforms how we understand the event, but in a way that is far more unpredictable than you would expect like there are some like digressions that just feel completely out of place but then once you return they have 
a certain kind of function that you would not be able to anticipate, but it's just the sort of sense of how it uses the structure to shift our expectations and our like expectations of the narrative. And it just keeps doing it again and again. And I think it's just an extremely smart, well-directed, really um, in the end, quite touching comedy. But yeah, I don't know. It's not a film that I think like jumps out necessarily as, oh, this is like the number one film of the year, but it's, it's like was there since Berlin and it has at least stayed there for me in terms of a film that I've quite loved from this year. And do you see that in relation also to the Arno film? Yeah, I was just wanting to just ask that. Yeah, there's definitely like a connection there. I I didn't think of it until just now when you asked, but yeah, like I guess I like in general films that play with structure in really interesting ways and sort of use that structure to like uh, not manipulate, but to sort of shift our interest in expectation and narrative and story. And I think both of those films do that really quite well, um, both in a kind of comic register as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, Patrick. Great. So for me, it's uh, the number one is Zhang Lu's The Shadowless Tower, uh, also a Berlin title, also a film that is probably heavily underseen because I don't think there are many ways to see that film. Yeah. Zhang Lu, I only really discovered him weeks before the Berlinale, and then I watched uh, three or four films in a row. I really love uh, Gyeongju of him. And Zhang Lu is an interesting filmmaker. He's a bit like uh, Yi Chang Dong in a way that they both have a Korean background, even though Zhang Lu is technically Chinese, but he's sort of from this Korean Chinese background, even the sort of community there. And uh, he also had another profession earlier. He was a novelist who turned uh, to be a film director. And his his filmmaking really just resulted from from a bet with his friends that he that filmmaking is so easy. He could just make a film. And then he made a short film, uh, so, so submitted it to Venice. There it was relatively successful as as it goes for short films and then he was just part of the circus basically and uh yeah um Yi Chang Dong is among his friends that's also why burning is referenced in that movie as well when they are mm -hmm. in a cafe or so and then yeah it's adjacent to theater so uh burning is playing there it's uh that's lovely because I love burning <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies yeah so the Shadowless Tower, it's it's to me uh, also such a poetic film. It's in in so many ways it feels like, yeah, maybe like literature as well, a bit like the Jaylan does, feels very novelistic. And there are a lot of motifs that are repeatedly explored and sort of uh, readjusted so they take on different meanings. Uh, we follow the sort of food critic and as so often in Zhang Lu's films, there's a younger woman who you may argue fulfills a sort of functionalistic, you know, a bit of, like a device, but often challenge uh, the of the characters or they challenge them to behave differently. And uh, as so often with his films, this is a very secluded protagonist 
uh, very withdrawn. There's this motif in this film that politeness sort of keeps people at, at bay in this culture. So it's a very polite protagonist, but therefore he also never really takes a chance, never really dares to reach out to people. And that makes all the all the moments that are centered on the relationships of people all the more endearing and all the more heartfelt. Yeah, often very dreamlike, this film. And yeah, there are just a few scenes that stand out to me. But yeah, it's also about this lost relationship to the father. But the father was also kicked out of the house because, uh, yeah, there's this loose accusation that he harassed people and it's never, you know, it's never really properly addressed in the film. And there, yeah, a lot of things that are not really explained. It's rather, yeah, we are thrown in and I think the film develops its own style so effortlessly uh, that, yeah, for me, it was really a home run. And yeah. Wow, it's definitely it. a film that I will see again at some point because I was very jet-lagged during Berlin. And Aww. so maybe I wasn't the most alert while seeing this film, but I will give it another shot uh, for sure on your recommendation. Good to hear. Uh, yeah, and that brings us to an end. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> applause to us. And I cannot believe that we made it. I, But I also wanted to give the two of you a chance to perhaps tell us, like our listeners, uh, where can we find you on the internet? And is there something like a piece of writing you feel like if proud is too big of a word, but writing you're satisfied with that you would like people to check out perhaps? I guess you can find <laughs> me on Letterboxd as, what is, I don't even know what my account is. El Garcia well, on Letterboxd. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I also have a Substack. It's just lawrencegarcia.substack.com. I don't write on it that often. But on that Substack, there is an essay that I wrote on Twin Peaks, The Return, or the third season of Twin Peaks. It's a very long essay. It's like 15,000 words. Don't read it if you haven't seen the, the show, because it won't make any sense. But if you have seen the show, you can read that. Um, that's probably the single piece of writing that I'm most uh, happy with. Again, this will all be in the show notes. And uh, you can find me on every social media that you can imagine. <laughs> I'm everywhere. It's it's fairy there, Mercury, like Freddie, but in a drag. And I don't know. I, I honestly don't have any writing that I'm proud of. I'm such a self-deprecative person. But uh, yeah, I feel like I'm more comfortable writing in French. I feel that I can express myself more poetically in French language. So if you know, if you read French. You can read my French writings on sorosinet.com. If you read Turkish, there's Altyazi and there are some few interviews and, and writings there everywhere uh, you can find. If you like, if you check my Twitter, you probably can find the other writings as well. But I think what I'm proud of the most is um, the interview we did with Dora, with Radu, it was such a great experience for me. Yeah, I think the interview with Radu Judan, do, do not expect too much from the end of the world, could be the best piece that I didn't write. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, thank you. 
uh, you guys for having us here. No, thank you. Thank you. Both. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure.